said, I go, well, whenever you're here, our attendance is up dramatically. And when you're gone, our attendance is lower. And he said, that's because I'm so good looking. And so you can give Burr Bramway a hard time next week and stuff. But um, I was like, who said Pearl or Brant Bill? And he said it was him, of course. But um, John chapter 7, in verse 53, last verse of the chapter. It says, And every man went unto his own house. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. So he just continued to wait. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and a woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Have no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life.
Scripture, he did it without sin among you. Let him first cast a stone at her. It is a scripture that is most often quoted when maybe a preacher is preaching against sin, or if someone asks you, do you think this is wrong? Or say you um, go and talk to a loved one and just caution them about the decisions they're making that are sinful. And they'll say things like, oh, it's not for us to judge. He that has no sin cast the first stone. And if they're using one of the modern Bibles, you realize that the publisher of their modern Bibles would say something like, this is not authentic, this does not belong um, in the Gospel of John. And so I just think it's kind of odd that sometimes people would quote a scripture that they don't even believe is part of scripture um, if they go by the theologians that they trust and everything. But the issue of this passage from verse 53 to verse 11 is um, in debate in different scholarly circles. Uh, um, and it's kind of been debated since the 1800s, but has actually been discussed earlier, at least in the 4th century, um, where they debate whether this portion should be included in the Gospel of John or not. Among those who don't believe this is inspired scripture, but they believe that a scribe added it in at one time, is Bruce Metzger, um, who is considered an expert in textual criticism, Leon Morris, Merrill Tinney. Some of you maybe don't know any, some of these names. Some of you may know some of this name, like D.A. Carson, um, Ed Blum, Colin Cruz, Linsky, Alfred Edersheim, and John Piper. And it really stirred up a great controversy um, when John Piper spoke on a Sunday night and he preached that he did not believe that this is part of the Gospel of John. And he wrote a blog about it. You could see it today where he gives his arguments on why he doesn't believe it's inspired scripture. And um, these people want us to accept that it is settled that it is not part of John's Gospel. Yet not all scholars, theologians, and pastors would agree with that, or Christians for that matter. Um, those that do believe it is part of inspired scripture that have noteworthy names is um, Dean John Willem Bergen um, in the 1800s. He um, battled when a um, critical text was coming out um, through Westcott and Hort, and it was supposed to be a revision of the King James to be where it would revise some of the archaic words, some of the words that aren't usually used in common English anymore, but under a vow of secrecy, the people were asked to give a vow that they would not tell the public at this time that they were going to be using this critical Greek text that Westcott and Hort produced. And, and, and so there was vow of secrecy. John Bergen and Frederick Schivner and some others opposed that. And they blew that secrecy wide open and said, showed that they are not trying to just revise updating the English words, but are using a whole new Greek text. And, and then they're saying Hodges as well. Um, D.A. Waite, David Otis Fuller, Edward Hills, A.W. Pink, R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, James Boyce, J.C. Ryle, and John Calvin. 
Um, these men all believe it is part of inspired scripture. And so there we end up having the same question that really began in the Garden of Eden of where it was mentioned. Yea, have God said. Was this mentioned? Is this part of scripture of the woman being um, committing adultery and, and then them trying to get Jesus to stone her? And, 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 and is this part of Scripture or is it not? And all throughout the century, Satan has tried to put a seed of doubt in Christians' minds. Have God said. In the modern era, beginning with Karl Lachmann in the 1800s, he was a German rationalist. Um, I don't believe he was a believer, um, but I wasn't really able to find any information one way or the other. But um, he had reservations about the passage being argued here. And, and, and then from him, he, he produced a first critical Greek printed text um, after looking at some of the manuscripts. And then his theories pass on to Samuel Davidson, Samuel Tregels, and then eventually to Westcott and Hort in 1886. Now, many of the textual critics of their day were unbelievers. They weren't Christians, but they were considered experts in Hebrew, Greek, Latin, and in, in various languages. Scholars today will sometimes justify um, them being unbelievers. Is it still being acceptable and in the, um, from the mind of God to the mind of man, um, through this came out of Bob Jones Publishing, and they justified trusting in these um, manuscripts, um, printed editions that were produced by unbelievers by saying this, a textual critic may be an unbeliever when it comes to the Bible's doctrinal truths. But when it comes to the Bible's text, a textual critic is initially little more than the reporter. And so their mindset was, you know what, they're experts in the languages, who cares if they're believers or not? I have a hard time accepting manuscripts that are being produced by unbelievers to, to, to tell me what, what I'm supposed to believe in. Now, this disputed passage is included in the 1611 King James Version. It's in the 1587 Geneva Bible. It's in the New King James. It's in the 1568 Bishop's Bible. It's in the 1539 Great Bible. In the 1537 Matthew Bible. The 1535 Coverdale Bible in the 1526 Tyndale Bible, and the 3882 John Wycliffe Bible. But modern Bibles either omit it, or put it in brackets, or in some kind of italics, or relegate it even to a footnote, and say things like, this is not from the most reliable manuscripts, that um, this isn't in the best manuscripts, that they basically want to let you know that this is fake news, a false story by fallible writers, and it's not to be part of the inspired text. Now, some of the people, John Piper and some of the others, that say it's not inspired scripture, do confess that they do believe that it's possible that the story did happen and that it was just oral tradition um, that passed on. Now again, back to Dean John Bergen in the 1880s, 
He opposed this vow of secrecy, to use Westcott and Hort's Greek text for the Revised Version. He says this about this passage of Scripture. Um, Jerome, A.D. 385, after a careful survey of older Greek copies, did not hesitate to retain it in the Vulgate. Talking about the Latin Vulgate. It is freely referred to and commented on by himself in Palestine, whereas Ambrose at Millen quotes it at least nine times, as well as Augustine in North Africa um, in 396 AD, about twice as often. It is quoted besides by Pacian in the north of Spain in 370, by Fossus the African, and Rufus Aquilian in 400, and by Chrysologus at Ravenna in 433, and Sedulus at Scott in 434. And so he's referring to these different people. Some of them were Christians. Some of them were um, heretics from the Roman Catholic Church. Um, but they quote the scripture. They quote the passage. And then um, also what is brought out is that the Codex L of the um, 8th century um, do not contain the passage. And this is um, Codex um, L um, right here. And, and so what he, um, he, John Bergen points out is that there is left a space um, for where the passage would go to, that it would be blank like that. Right here is John 7 to 52, and then where 53 is, instead of it just continuing on with 812, they actually leave a blank spot. And so this is kind of like a silent testimony, a silent witness that something is missing. That either the, the, the scribe perhaps was writing it and then realized, hey, part of the manuscript I'm reading from and copying from does not have this, um, but maybe I'll leave a blank space um, so we could fill it in later. Um, and there's other manuscripts um, like that as well. Um, the Delta from the 9th century. Um, again, um, it doesn't have the passage but it leaves a blank space where the lines would fit. And now the other manuscripts from um, the Alexandrian line of texts, um, it will just go from verse 53 to verse 12. And I just remember that there weren't verse destinations before. That was the modern innovation in the um, 1500s and 1600s. But um, so it's just the other ones just have the text completely out. Now, one of the men that um, Bergen um, mentions that has quoted the passage in the 4th century was Pacium of Barcelona, and he was a Catholic bishop in Spain, and he was against the Novation Christians who did not submit to Rome, um, who would not receive um, in their churches those who renounced their faith when there was persecution. That when there was great persecution... Um, from Nero and others, from the emperors, that many of the Christians, so to speak, they recanted their faith in persecution. And the Novations, after the persecution was ended, would not receive them in the church because they say, you know what, these are phonies. You know what, they, now they could have repented and really made it right, but they were skeptical about receiving them back in. And they also did not take sin lightly. And so then this bishop mockingly 
wrote to them, O novations, why do ye delay to ask an eye for an eye? Kill the thief, stone the pit one. Choose not to read in the gospel that the Lord spared even the adulteress who confessed when none had condemned her. And so here's the Catholic bishop mocking them and everything for this, for taking sin, um, sin seriously. And he mocks them, oh yeah, um, don't, don't read that passage. And so, but that is a witness that that was in the scriptures, that they understood that was there. Ambrose, in the fourth century, he wrote this, When the Jews found an adulteress, they brought her to the Savior, seeking to entrap him, so that if he freed her, he might appear to destroy the law. He who had said, I have not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And if he would condemn her, he would seem to have come against the purpose of his plan. The Lord Jesus, foreseeing this, bent his head and wrote on the ground. When the Jews demand payment, the names of the Jews are written on the ground. When Christians come forward, the names of the faithful are written not on the ground, but in heaven. He raises his head again as to pronounce sentence and says, Let him who is without sin be the first to cast a stone at her. Those who were listening to him began to go away one by one. When they went away, Jesus remained alone, and raising his head to the woman, he said, Where are they who accuse thee? Has no one stoned thee? And she said, No one. Jesus said, Neither will I condemn thee. Go and see that from now on you sin no more. He does not condemn as if he purchased her back. He as life restores her like a fountain. He washes her clean. And because when Jesus inclines his head, he does so that he may raise up those who have fallen. He, the redemption of sins, says, Neither will I condemn thee. One of the earliest objections to the John passage is that Christ um, seems to begin rid of the Old Testament law requiring the death penalty for adultery. Many at this time were also fearful that with this passage, their wife may be more prone to commit adultery. And Ambrose mentioned in his sermon on David and Bathsheba, condemning those who were critical of Christ and those who, wanted, who removed the passage. He says, in the same way also the gospel lesson which has been read, many have caused no small offense to the uns may have caused no small offense to the unskilled. In which you have noticed that an adulteress was brought to Christ and dismissed without condemnation. Did Christ err that he did not judge righteously? It is not right that such a thought should come to our minds. And so Ambrose, he recognized at his period of time, there were people that were, it mention, they're adding to the manuscripts, but that they were removing it because some of the Christians, so to speak, or some of the religious people were removing it because they thought it would have showed Jesus as condemning the Old Testament law. And that also people were fearful that maybe their wives would think, I could get away with adultery. And so he removed it. Um, many other of the Latin fathers, so to speak, including John Christentum and Augustine of Hippo, all speak of the passage as being scripture. Augustine in the 4th century um, said, Some scribes removed the passage 
because it might seem that Christ was soft on adultery. He said, certain persons of little faith, or rather enemies of the true faith, fearing, I suppose, lest their wives should be given impunity in sinning, remove from their manuscripts the Lord's act of forgiveness toward the adulteress, as if he who has said sin no more had granted permission to sin. And so we see even early on in the 400s is when this passage was being removed from some of the manuscripts. And so that confirms, though, in the Bibles of the early 300s and 400s that there were some manuscripts that had it in and some that had it not. And then Jerome, who translated the Latin Vulgate, and it has a lot of issues with it. You know, the Latin Vulgate does. You know, it's translated from what's called um, the Septuagint instead of from the Greek text. But um, he translated Latin Vulgate, and he did use some uh, Greek, um, of the Greek New Testament as well. But he translated it in 383 A.D., and in the Latin Vulgate, it is in there. And, 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 and most certainly use in manuscripts that maybe are no longer available to us today. He wrote this, in the gospel according to John. Okay, cause some, what, what some scholars today will try to say is that, yeah, we may find um, throughout history where this story is mentioned, but we don't know that it comes from the gospel of John. Well, Jerome makes it actually very clear in that he says, In the Gospel according to John, in many manuscripts, both Greek and Latin, is found a story of the adulterous woman who was accused before the Lord. And so there's external evidence for the inclusion of the Scripture passage that he said both Greek and Latin have this part. The Codex Bazee, a Greek manuscript produced around 450 A.D., contains these passages. And when they total them all up, this is the latest number I was able to find. It's always updating as they find more manuscripts. But um, this the latest I found was 1,495 Greek manuscripts include this passage in John. 267 do not. Almost 85% included. Now, some of the arguments against its inclusion is they say the manuscript flows more efficiently if you go from 52 to verse um, 12. They say, They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Speaking about Nicodemus. Search and look, for out of Galilee arise of no prophet. And then they say, If you have 53 to verse 11, that there's this interruption, that it doesn't flow with how John writes. And, and that, so they say you should pick up on verse 12, where it says, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world, and he that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And then it goes on. And so they'll say it does, the flow doesn't flow well with the passage in there. However, looking at it, it flows better with the passage in. 
is, is obviously recording an interruption. Okay, we see Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught him. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taking adultery, and when they had set her in the midst. Okay, this is the interruption. Okay, they came and interrupted what was going on. But if we take it out, it really doesn't make sense because in verse 12, it says, Then spake Jesus again unto them. Well, who would the them be? Well, just before that, if you remove the passage, it's the Pharisees and the scribes. They're not even with Jesus. They're away, and they're confronting the officers, and they're asking, why didn't you get Jesus? Why didn't you get him? Jesus is already gone. He's already somewhere else. And they're sort of like, why didn't you get him? And so then the passage says, then Jesus spake unto him, I, 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 am, I, am I am the light. So that doesn't make sense. Because Jesus isn't even there. He wasn't part of that group. That would mean like it was going, because it says he said unto them again. Jesus wasn't ever speaking with them yet. Jesus spoke with others earlier, and where he said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture said, out of his belly shall rivers of living water. And, and many of the people therefore believe. Some of them believe. Some of them believe he was the prophet. Some of them believe he was Christ. And so it would not be accurate for it to say he said unto them again, speaking to the Pharisees, if Jesus was not even yet with the discussion between Nicodemus and the other Pharisees. And when looking at it, it is actually how John often wrote. You look throughout John's um, gospel, often John starts with a situation, some, an incident that happens. And then Jesus gives a lesson based on what happened, based on that incident. And here is what we see happening here. We see this woman in adultery. And then we see um, that it fits the backdrop of what Jesus says next, um, that I am the light of the world. That okay, we see in verse 2, and early in the morning he came again into the temple. It was just night, and now early in the table. This is a new day, full of hope, second chances. New light is coming, just like the dawn and the rising sun that continue to shine and more light on the temple grounds. Old ways are passing like the night, and that a new day is coming. And then Jesus says, after he talks about the darkness of this woman, or the Pharisees talk about the darkness, the evil of this woman's sin. And Jesus then says, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And he tells the woman just before that to go and sin no more. And so really there shouldn't be any debate about this passage being part of Scripture. Don't let Satan cast out. Don't let preachers cast out upon the Word of God. But we see again early in the morning, he came again into the temple. And I will expose the text. We see the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. 
Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stone, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. That here Jesus, again, who said, I am not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. They always try to get him tripped up. They try to get him tripped up on the Sabbath day. Why, why do your disciples pick corn? Why, 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 the corn of wheat. Why, why, why does this happen? And why, why do you heal this man on the Sabbath day? And he asked him, why are you circumcised on the Sabbath day? And, and so they try to trip him up. And now this is what the law says in Deuteronomy 22. You can turn there if you like. Didn't mean to spend so much time in that beginning part. Apologize about that, but just want you to know, just in case you read any, any notes, study notes in your Bible that said this is not in the best manuscripts, when it is in the best manuscripts, and it's in most of the manuscripts. And there's the witnesses, and there's other translations in other languages in the, from the third and fourth centuries that have it in there. But the law says in Deuteronomy 22:22, "Of a man be found lying with a woman married to an husband, then they both shall both of them die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman, so shall thou put away evil from Israel. Of a damsel that is a virgin be betrothed unto an husband, and the man find her in the city and lie with her, then you shall bring them both out into the gate of that city, and you shall stone them with stones that they die." The damsel, because she cried not, being in the city, and the man, because he hath humbled his neighbor's wife. So thou shalt put away evil from among you. Leviticus 20, verse 10. It says, And the man that committed adultery with another man's wife, even he that committed adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And the man that lieth with his father's wife, have uncovered his father's nakedness, both of them shall surely be put to death, their blood shall be upon them. Now to catch someone in the act of adultery so that it would hold up in a Jewish trial for execution was no small feat. Okay, There were protections put in place um, to protect from people being falsely accused. Um, Deuteronomy 17.6 says, At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. The hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put him to death. And afterwards the hands of all the people, so thou shalt put the evil from among you. So he says there needs to be two or three witnesses. This isn't something that's just done flippantly. It's not like, oh, you know what, this person sinned, let's go kill him. No, this is something that was taken seriously. And it was the witnesses that were to cast the stones first. And that's where Jesus says, he that have no sin, cast the first stone. That is also, um, speaking of, okay, if, they, if they've truly witnessed it and they know it's happened, and if they're without sin, they cast it. Now, the witnesses actually had to have seen the couple going through the physical movements of intimacy that could be capable of no other explanation. Compromising circumstances such as a man and a woman um, coming out of the room where they'd been alone or even seeing them lying in the same bed was not sufficient. They had to actually catch them in the act. 
And that's where the Pharisees try saying, we found her in the very act. I'm committing adultery. The witnesses, two to three, had you have seen the same acts at the same time in the presence of each other for their testimony to hold up in a Jewish court. And so it's very likely that the scribes and Pharisees had set a trap in the first place to catch this woman. The man, perhaps, was even one of them. Okay, We, we are not told um, that specifically, but somehow they were preparing, they were ready to get this woman to bring her to Jesus. And so either, so when they brought him to Jesus, they were trying to trap him. He would either agree that the woman must be stoned, thereby undermining his reputation to be the savior of the world, to save those from their sin. This also would get him in trouble with the Roman government, in the flesh, so to speak. He's God. No, no one could get God in trouble. But in the flesh, so to speak, um, the Roman government who did not give the Jews the right of capital punishment. It's the Roman now occupied, controlled um, Israel at this time. Or Jesus would show her mercy, thus proving that he did not uphold the law of Moses and was soft on sin. And so this was a deliberate trap um, set for Jesus, but likely also for the woman. Because only one sinner is brought to Jesus. They did not bring the man forward. It takes two to commit adultery. Unless someone's less than saying, looking at pornography and committing adultery in their heart. But for the physical act of adultery, it had to be with two people. So where was the man? See, one of the Pharisees, maybe he wasn't, but he was allowed to escape. And now we do know the woman is guilty because Jesus knows she's guilty. He tells her, sin no more. So she is guilty of it. So it's not completely made up. But the Pharisees did not grab the man. We see then that Jesus writes on the ground. Stooped down with his finger, wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. And then he continued asking is when they continued asking him, like Jesus basically ignoring them, but he lifted up himself and said unto him, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Jesus is in fact siding with Moses, affirming the validity of the lost sinness and calling for her to be stoned. Yet he acknowledges the injustice of the proceedings by disqualifying her would-be executioners. Jesus wasn't supposed to be the one to cast a stone. He did not witness it. Okay, now in the spirit, okay, yes, Jesus sees everything. Okay, but here in the flesh, we see, okay, Jesus wasn't the one that's to be stoned. So he, tell, he tells them, he does, first, without sin among you, let him first cast a stone. Now, the law did not require that one not to have sin, because everyone did have sin. But he is pointing out the injustice that they're doing. That one, okay, the two or three witnesses, step out. Let's not just generically say, hey, this woman was caught in adultery. Where's the man at? He is pointing out this injustice in trying to stone this woman. 
that they did not follow lawful procedures that involve capital punishment. And so Jesus is challenging them to merely obey the law to which they said they cleave to. He's calling for a requirement, basically, two or three witnesses, okay? Who, who has, if they're credible witnesses, they must now identify themselves according to Jew, Jewish custom and the law um, to make known the identity of the man. They weren't just to make known the identity of the woman. So by law, they would be made to know, make known the man, known the name of the man as well, to bring him forth. The stoning cannot continue, but the first stones must first be cast by the same men for the stoning to continue. Now again, this scripture is often taken out of context to mean that we don't ever confront those in sin because we are all sinners. You know, like if, if people t- talk about, say, homosexuality being a sin, okay, especially during June, during Gay Pride Month. You know, people will say things, even Christians will say, who am I to judge? You know what, love is love, and you know what, he that has no sin cast the first stone. And again, they're probably using the modern Bible that says it doesn't belong in there. Okay, well, it does belong in the Bible, but... If you get what I'm saying, they're, they're quoting a verse that their publisher doesn't believe, believes it belongs in there. But they take that verse out of context to mean that we don't ever confront those in sin. Saying we are all sinners. And then it just brings a tolerance for sin. And that's what we see Paul ends up dealing with at the church at Corinth. That they had tolerated sin amongst the believers. They didn't mourn. They didn't grieve. They didn't challenge one another to get things right. They just overlooked it. They had the same attitude people have today. Oh, who am I to judge? But man, you look at John the Baptist confronting Caesar and with him committing adultery with his brother's wife, or the the king. We don't see John the Baptist saying, hey, who am I to judge? If he wants to commit adultery with his brother's wife, that's up to him. I'm a sinner too. No, we see him preaching. We see him preaching that it is not lawful to take your brother's wife. We see Peter confronting the liars, Ananias and Sapphira, when they lied about the funds that were given and said this was all that was sold for that property and were given it for the needs of the saints. Now they said, you know, it was your funds, it was your money. You could have done with it whatever you wanted. You didn't have to give any of it. But he confronts them with they lied, that they said they gave it all, that they tempted the Lord God. Again, we don't see Peter saying, oh, oh well, it's not for me to judge. You know what? We're all sinners. No, they're to confront sin. We see Paul confronting fornication and incest. In 1 Corinthians 5, we see Jesus teaching about church discipline in Matthew 18. To go unto them that set fall. And then if they don't repent, take another or two with you. That there'd be two or three witnesses. Okay? And, and then, if they still don't hear it, then you bring it before the church. And likewise with Matthew 7, it's another verse that's often taken out of context where they say, judge not lest ye be judged. Yes, you know what? Jesus doesn't want us as Christians to have pharisaical attitudes of I'm all righteous and these people are all sinners to be condemned. But he does tell them 
to also, you know what? Get the beam out of your own eye. Get that big sin out of your own life. And then in the right spirit with grace and mercy, you'll be able to help them with their little sins. Hey, he says to Mo. You know what? Some ask the question, is there any such thing as little sin or big sin? Um, and no, most often people say no. And in the sense where James writes, if you break one point of the law, you're guilty of all. Okay, that part's true. But there are little sins and big sins. James talks about there are some sins on your death and there are some sins not on your death. We see Jesus says, He that have delivered me unto you hath committed the greater sin. We see that there are different consequences in the Bible for different sins. Okay, if my child gets a cookie out of a cookie jar when we said no, which we don't have a cookie jar, okay? But that would have been disobedience. But that is not going to get the same consequence as someone committing murder. There's other consequences. Now, did either one make him a sinner? Yes, it did. Okay. What did Jesus write on the ground? We see that he's convicted. The people get convicted. Some wonder if, they, if Jesus was writing the Pharisees' girlfriends' names down. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us, so we can speculate all we want, but it's not going to be necessarily the right answer. All we know is that he wrote in the ground. One of the early writers thought he was writing down um, something from Jeremiah where it says to the men that you will be childless. Well, nowhere in the Bible does it say that. So, you know, what? We, we can't say with authority what it would say. And so we shouldn't speak where God has not spoken. But we see he stooped down and wrote on the ground, and they which heard it, being convicted of their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. So they end up leaving. So whatever he was writing down, drawing, whatever it was, Convicted them. There was conviction. Jesus lifted himself up, saw none but the woman, and he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Have no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And she said, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Jesus alone could have cast that first stone. Okay, now, in one sense, he was not a witness of being physically present, but he knew her guilt. So, in a way, the eyes of the Lord behold the good and evil, but he was the only one without sin. He said, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Jesus didn't say, oh, keep on sinning. It's not for me to judge. No, he told her. He confronted her with her sin and said, go and sin no more. God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. He had chosen you to do the same for those who put their faith in Christ. To let us go forth, to live holy lives in gratitude for his mercy to us. When I got saved, it did not give me a mentality of, now I'm saved from hell, I'm going to go sin all I want. People will sometimes mock us. Once saved, always save people and say, oh, so you believe you just sin all you want. Um, well, I really believe, you know, I'm a new creature in Christ, and so I'm going to want to follow Christ. 
But yes, if I do fall in sin, yes, I do not lose being a child of God. Just like when my child disobeys, they do not end up no longer being my child. They just receive chastening. And so we as children of God receive chastening from the Lord. And we see, then spake Jesus unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Ephesians 4, go ahead and turn there. Ephesians 4 and verse 27. Says, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole still no more. But rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. Okay, that now okay, you're a new creature in Christ. You know what? Don't, don't be a thief anymore. Okay? Get things right. You know what? Now go, go to work and, 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 do, and do, the, do the right things. Grieve not the Spirit of God. We see, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you. And it goes on, and it talks about, but walk in love as Christ also have loved us. It talks about fornication, uncleanness, covetousness. Let it not be once named among you as become of saints. Neither filthiness, foolish talking. Now, you know what? When we follow Christ, who is the light of the world, the light of the world. We should not walk in darkness. We should go forth and sin no more. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, Know ye that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Now some of these were sins unto death, that deserved the death penalty. Okay, sometimes people ask the question, you know what, are we still under the Mosaic law in the sense that we're supposed to give the death penalty for everything? Okay, there are certain things Jesus repeated. Okay, he talked about you have been a ch little child. You know what? That a millstone ought to be tied about your neck and thrown in the depths of the sea. Okay, there, there's some things that, that are worthy of death. Um, the Bible also talks about he that sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Okay, but with all these errors, we see now there's people that are getting saved and then they're a changed life. Now, Leviticus 20. 12 and 13, they talk about fornication, um, adultery, and homosexuality deserving the death penalty. Question is, okay, is that still to be applied today? But um, won't go there, but you can write this down. You look at what Paul wrote to New Covenant believers um, in the New Testament, the church at Corinth. Um, that the passage that okay, it says, the man that lieth of his father's wife in Leviticus have uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them sh shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. That incident happens at Corinth. We don't see Paul advocating for the death penalty, but he does advocate for the church to confront the, them in their sin and to break yoke of them from being part of the fellowship in the hopes that th their spirit would be saved, that they would get right. And we see in 2 Corinthians 
that demand does get it right and things are brought back in. And so the death penalty was not advocated for. Now, it's still a sin and a new death, okay? You know, when you look at God's law, but we see grace and mercy have kissed each other. That we see Jesus come up with grace and truth. And that he didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Let's pray and just have a time of invitation. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that we can have confidence in your word. That what is found in our King James Bible is an accurate translation of the Greek received text, the Texas Receptus that was received by the churches throughout all ages. Thank you, Lord, for the confidence we can have in your word. And Lord, help us not to be pharisaical where we're going around condemning people. But help us not to be the people that tolerate sin, that embraces sin. Help us to show people that, yes, they are sinners, and that's why they need Jesus. Jesus, the great deliverer, who suffered death for us, became our sacrifice. Help us, Lord, to be a witness as well. week during the Sunday school hour is going to be a brief time. We're going to have just a quick business meeting about one matter um, about our insurance um, rates. Our insurance rates are going up and so there's some adjustments that we can make to um, get things to come back down in price and so we'll talk about it at church next week. See if church if you want to adjust the price or leave it as is. Um, that'll be during the latter part of the Sunday school hour. Rowan, please give us the announcements. Praise the Lord that we do have a merciful God, a wonderful God, a God that has saved us or has the want, um, the desire to save us from sin. And thank God that we have his word. Um, and thank God that we have a pastor who, who covets that word and preaches from that word. Amen. So let's go ahead and look at the announcements as we end today. Uh, right after the service, the teens and myself and Nicole are going to be going to the teen invasion at Lauren's house. Um, that gets over. We'll start cleaning up there around 3, should be back here around 3.30 p.m. Um, there is still some slots open for the upcoming month, so if you are interested in hosting either a teen invasion where we come to your home or an afterglow where you can host that here so um, you don't have a bunch of teens at your house, um, if you have any questions on that, you can see me, and uh, if you don't, then the sign-up sheets are back on the table, and uh, please avail yourself to that. Mission Sunday, June 23rd, get to know your missionaries. are going to be watching the latest video updates from all our missionaries here at Napavine Baptist Church. Um, pray about what you might be able to set aside financially each month in support of these gospel missions, and we're also going to be observing um, Great Commission Sunday, so we're going to have... Um, Following the church service, we're going to go out in the community. We're going to pass out gospel tracts um, in our area. Looking forward to that, right? If, if you 
are, are someone who has been wanting to get out there in the community more to be fulfilling the Great Commission and maybe you just haven't had the time or you just haven't done it before, you're a little nervous, this is a great opportunity. We can partner you with somebody. You can go out there, you can go door knocking, and uh, we can be a light in our community as the Lord has asked us to be. Ladies Coffee Break, June 27th, that is a Thursday. Um, stay tuned for some locations that we are going to be having these. Um, we're going to be having these at different ladies' house, maybe sometimes even at the church. Um, different ladies are going to be speaking, bringing the Lord's word to those ladies and just being an encouragement to each other. Trustee meeting on June 30th and upcoming in August is Vacation Bible School. I mentioned this last week that uh, VBS is going to be here before you know it. It seems like it's a long way away. It's, it's not until August 5th through the 8th, but that'll be here, um, I, I guarantee, in the blink of an eye. There is back on the back table for Vacation Bible School, there is a, an example of the flyer. This is a second example. Um, there's no need for us to print out dozens and dozens of flyers yet. We go and start handing those out to people, they're going to lose them, right? It's still over a month away. However, a good way to do this is if you have your smartphone, grab this, take a picture of both sides, post it onto your social media account, share it with everyone you can, and then we'll continue to share it with those people as it gets closer to VBS. That's a good way. Um, we'll put it on the website like normal, and then we're going to print out dozens of these, and as we go in the community, we will be handing these out door-to-door -door as well. This year it's going to be a high seas adventure, August 5th through the 8th, 6th to 8.30 p.m. There are some needs for Vacation Bible School. Um, so if you are able to help out with any of those needs, there is a needs list back on the back table. Things that we would like to have for both um, costumes and for some of the classes that we're going to be teaching, um, some of the decorations. If you're able to help with that, um, go ahead and, and uh, put your name next to one of those and see Nicole or myself, and uh, we'll get you set up and tell you where you need to bring those, when you need to bring them, things like that.